like to welcome everybody to Bible Quest, the Wednesday edition, uh, the New Jersey, Pennsylvania edition. Have Chase Byers with us from uh, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. I said it right, Chase. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate that. How you doing, Joe? Just fine. And Jeff Smelser from Exton, Pennsylvania, who is not in Exton, Pennsylvania. Jeff, can you hear us? I'm not. I'm in, I am. I'm in Harrisonville, Missouri. And I, I'm impressed, Joe, you got Chase's town right. Even though I'm in Harrisonville, uh, you got his town right. Well, um, uh, I'm not going to tell you whether I had it written in front of me or not. But uh, <laughs> also want to send out a thank you to Drew DeGrado, who's handling all the technical aspects uh, of this uh, webinar. Uh, certainly could not do this uh, without uh, those expertise. And so appreciate Drew's uh, efforts in that regard. So... Uh, before we get started on the topic, uh, which is uh, advertised as the seven things the Lord hates, I wanted to first mention uh, this afternoon that there is a camp coming up, the SOUL, which stands for Sons of Light, SOUL Bible Camp for Young Men. Uh, it is in uh, Candonesis, Pennsylvania, uh, which is the northeast part of Pennsylvania, uh, ages 12 to 18 approximately. If uh, anybody listening is either fits into that age as a male or if you have a son or a nephew or somebody from your congregation who you think might be interested in attending this camp, please feel free to uh, get hold of me. Uh, and uh, I'll put my email address up here as we're speaking. And uh, uh, the camp is very much geared toward Bible study. It's an intensive uh, Bible study camp. And so we would uh, welcome anybody of those ages or near those ages even who is interested in coming uh, to, to get hold of me. My email address is there on the screen uh, right beside my name, I think, I hope. It's a really good opportunity. The young men who attend your camp show really get a lot out of it. Uh, so I would encourage men, young men to uh, think about spending a week of their summer doing that. Yeah. Yeah definitely been a helpful camp for me as I was growing up. I attended one in Indiana and uh, toward the later end of my teenage years, I was going to the one that Joe runs and it was certainly a huge encouragement to me. Well, it, it, <clears throat> say my camp and I appreciate that, but uh, it, it is so many people contribute to it. Uh, primarily John Bosworth, who helps me tremendously. And then some of the teachers, I probably won't remember them all off the top of my head, but uh, Jeff Smelser's teaching, Scott Smelser, Gardner Hall, Gary Fisher, Don Bunting, Simon Harris, Tom Rainwater, Ed Smith, and Andy Mitchell. And I think that's got all the teachers, counselors from uh, all over the, uh, the Northeast, uh, Chase, David Rafe, um, uh, Justin Dobbs, who's now in Indiana, um, uh, and Tim Bunting, Nathan Combs, um, and that's only a few of them, Dan Kane. Several, several men from the area as well that are just excellent counselors. So just have a tremendous staff uh, helping to organize and run this camp. So if anybody's interested, please let me know. So the topic for today, if I can get to figure out how to do this technical part of sharing my screen here, um, is seven things that the Lord hates, taken from Proverbs 6 verses 16 uh, through uh, 19. 
you want to be turning in your Bibles if you're following along with us. And also want to remind you that if you have any comments or questions, uh, disagreements uh, even, uh, please feel free to send those in. Either you can send those through the Facebook comments or uh, if you're following us on Zoom, you can comment right here on that as well. Uh, I think both of those are working fine. And Chase, you're checking the, the comments on Facebook. Sure. I would like to go ahead and add, I'm counting about a 20-second delay between our live stream and the Facebook. So if I don't get to your comment as soon as it comes up, uh, just know that I'll be seeing it in about 20 seconds after. Yeah, yeah. we very much do not want to ignore any comments, and we never do that on purpose. Uh, but sometimes because of the or maybe we just don't see it right away, um, uh, we will, but we'll try to, to get to it. We really appreciate and encourage the, the comments and questions, so please join in with that. So in Proverbs 6, verses 16 through 19, uh, there's a text that, that says, These six things the Lord hates, yes, seven are an abomination to him. A proud look, a lying tongue, and uh, I was going to try to follow those through, and they're not coming up now on my screen. Um, there we go. A proud look, lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that are swift and running to evil, a false witness who speaks lies, and one who sows discord among brethren. And recently, uh, through a study, actually it was through scripture writings that we were doing, uh, this was one of the passages that we were writing for a particular day, and as I wrote that, it just came to my mind, why these seven things? I mean, certainly these are things that the Lord does hate, but there's a lot of other things that upset the Lord, and there are other things that are recorded in other passages. So I just tried to figure out, like, why are these things listed, and why are they listed in this way? And I don't know that I have the answer to that question, but I'd like to at least use some of our time this afternoon to run through my thinking process Welcome anybody to participate in that. Certainly, Jeff and Chase, uh, jump in wherever you would like on, on any of this. But as I was studying this, the thing that came that sparked my interest was when I got to the lying tongue part there, the second one that's listed, over in Psalm 109, there is a, a, a reference for us, and uh, i got to try to figure out how to get this in a place where I can read it myself. Uh, for the mouth of the wicked and the mouth of the deceitful have opened against me, they have spoken against me with a lying tongue. And in Kitchen's commentary on Proverbs, he mentioned uh, in connection with Proverbs 6 that this same idea of a lying tongue is used here in Psalm 109. And then in passing, uh, he made a comment that uh, to remember that Psalm 109 is a messianic text, particularly verse 8 is quoted for us over in Acts, the first chapter, regarding Judas. That just started sparking my interest. Well, I wonder if Psalm 109 might be talking, is, is talking about Judas, at least verse 8, and maybe verse 2 also, then maybe Proverbs 6 could also be talking uh, in messianic terms. And so that sort of uh, got me thinking along these lines. So let's run through this, and guys, just jump in wherever you would like on any of this. Um, in, there's the passage that's quoted in Psalm 109.8 and in Acts, 20, Acts 1 and verse 20. And then look at a couple other passages. I think I have most of these passages up on the screen uh, for us, so we don't have to turn to them, or at least many of them are up. This idea of a lying tongue, 
You remember, for example, in Matthew 26 and in verses 48 and 49, concerning uh, Judas, it says, Now his betrayer had given them a sign, saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one, seize him. Immediately he went up to Jesus and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And so you see this idea of Judas's lying tongue saying, Greetings, Rabbi, which is certainly Jesus was. But he is doing that in a very deceitful or in a lying way. Also in John 12, right before Jesus' betrayals and crucifixions that week, when Jesus is being anointed by Mary in John 12, 1 through 8, Judas is the one who says this oil could be sold and the money given to help the poor. But he was lying about that. He wanted those funds for himself. So certainly you see Judas having this lying tongue in connection uh, to Psalm 109 uh, and in Proverbs 6. So you may be getting to this in a minute, but it it occurs to me as you read Matthew 26, um, now his betrayer had given them a sign saying, whomever I kiss, he's the one, seize him. That also sounds a lot like number four of the seven things the Lord hates, a heart that devises wicked plans. Yes, there's going to be a couple of these verses that could easily fit into different categories there. All right. Hands that shed innocent blood. Okay, I'll, I'll, try, I'll try not to get ahead here. But I'm no, no, that's fine. That's fine. I, I'm, I'm thankful because when people see these other connections, I think that just makes this, uh, this screen uh, even more powerful, at least for application. Uh, I'm not going to argue with anybody long about whether this is a messianic prophecy or, I guess, a messianic proverb, um, uh, but it certainly seems to fit the category of the time of the Messiah, particularly the last week of Jesus' life and those who opposed him. Yeah, and there's no doubt that these, I think, really match up well with the things that Judas did. But also looking at this list, I wonder if these are even prophesying some about what some of the other disciples did as well, Um, especially having a proud look and and a lying tongue. I think about Peter in particular. And so I'm curious about that, if maybe some of the other disciples can fit into these categories as well. Yeah, I, I think perhaps some of the other disciples' actions and certainly some of the other uh, participants in the crucifixion of Jesus would certainly apply. Um, but yeah, I, this, is not, this is not at all a, an all-inclusive list of, of verses or individuals who we can think about, but you're exactly right. As far as the proud look, think about what Jesus said regarding those who were later on going to crucify him. Uh, when he's calling them out as as hypocrites in Matthew 23, verses 5 through 7, he says, But all their works they do to be seen by men. They make their phylacteries broad and enlarge the borders of their garments. They love the best places at feasts, the best seats in the synagogues, greetings in the marketplace, and to be called by men, Rabbi, Rabbi. They, you know, that, that idea of the proud look, I think, fits into that. And, of course, every time that Jesus disagreed with them or every time that somebody sided with Jesus, you get that sort of looking down their nose on those people, that, that proud look that all the religious leaders or most of the religious leaders shared uh, in the life of Christ. And so those first two situations certainly seem to apply there. It it was just thinking, um, I think, I think you're going to probably develop all seven of these as things that we see especially in the last week uh, of Jesus before he was crucified. They are things, in many instances, that are highlighted in the prophets 
uh, in Isaiah, for example, the idea of the proud look, um, heart that devises wicked plans. We see something similar, Michael, we might look at in a minute. Maybe it's not surprising that the things that have historically aggrieved God concerning the behavior of his people and, and about which he spoke to them through his prophets are, are the things that we see also turned against the Christ when he uh, comes into the world. These people uh, that are characterized by these things are the ones who oppose Jesus, and we see these things in these same ways. I, I don't know. It's it's interesting, that, but it is interesting that we see I, it, just looking through them, we really see all of these in the last week of Jesus, I think, don't we? Yeah, I, I, that, that will be my argument as we go along. Uh, but I appreciate that. This is something that's consistent throughout Scripture. Uh, these are not things that only apply to uh, the time of the Messiah. Um, uh, I think most of them, maybe all of them, would fit into those who fought against David, uh, you know, the, the foreshadowing. Um, most of them would fit into uh, the time of, of Moses and the book of Numbers and so forth uh, regarding those that opposed the, uh, Moses as well. So uh, maybe even, you know, Nehemiah, several of them would fit with that time period also. So it, it is a consistent thing, I guess, and I should have started with this. I wonder, just as my own confession, if I were asked, not knowing this passage, uh, you know, what are seven things that the Lord hates? This would not be the list that I would come up with. Right. <laughs> there, there are other sins that certainly other passages show that the Lord doesn't condone and, and other passages that show that they are abominations to the Lord, like the strong word that's used here. Um, but, but my list would not have looked like this. In fact, some of these I would have thought, well, yeah, they're bad, but <laughs> there are other things that are a lot worse. Uh, but that's my judgment. That's the way that I would think about it without having the guidance from the Lord. Once I see what the Lord says, then I recognize how horrible these sins are. Yeah. So moving on then to the hands that shed innocent blood even. Look at some of the, the thoughts that are given here um, uh, in Acts 2 and in verse 23. When Peter is preaching on the day of Pentecost, uh, you know he's, he's practically quoting this idea. You have taken by lawless hands, have crucified, and have put to death. Um, uh, or you have earlier than that, in regard to those who were uh, betraying Jesus, Judas in Matthew 27, verses 3 and 4, uh, one of the statements that he says is, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, what's that to us? You see to it. Uh, so again, he uses that exact phrase of innocent blood there. Um, those who were crying out for Jesus's crucifixion in Matthew 27, 25, all the people I answered and said, his blood be upon us and on our children. Now, thankfully, that doesn't pass on to their children, uh, their sins, but that was their very bold cry. So they were more than willing to shed innocent blood. Um, they, they were very quick to, to do that very thing uh, with their hands. Um, and then thinking about those who plot wicked things, um, trying to get my everything together here, a heart that devises wicked plans. And just about every phrase there, you know, whether it's the heart or whether it's the devising or planning, you know, all of that is rather intriguing. But look at all the passages, and I was somewhat surprised about how many of them came up in Matthew. Maybe mm -hmm. I'm in the, the chart, Justice, 
maybe we could find a complete pattern in Matthew. I've not done that yet. If somebody does, you know, send that to me and I'll change it and uh, use it next time. Uh, yeah, so far you have Matthew, uh, an illustration of each of these from Matthew in all of the first four things the Lord hates here. Right. And so thinking about some of these statements, uh, this was really just a plan all the way through. And, and I'm only, for this part here, I only have four verses up, but really going all the way back to passages like Mark 3, we see that, that they were plotting to kill Jesus, the Herodians and the Pharisees were. Uh, here in Matthew 12, the Pharisees went out, plotted uh, against them how they might destroy him. Matthew 22, then the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might entangle him in his talks. 26, the chief priests, the scribes, the elders of the people assembled at the palace and plotted to take Jesus by trickery and kill him. Uh, 27.1, when morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people plotted Jesus to put him to death. So you just see those ideas, and depending on what translation you have, I think maybe you have all of those words being used there, a heart that devises wicked plans. Um, But that's just very much a theme running through the book of Matthew. They're just plotting, they're intent on killing the Lord. And, you know, this isn't just, uh, what is it, a a crime of passion. Uh, This is very deliberate action on the part of uh, the leaders. I'm interested in number five. And so uh, that one uh, I had to think about a little bit because we don't have such clear quotations. But look at a couple of these ideas here in John 13, for example, um, uh, when Jesus has washed the disciples' feet, says that now after the piece of bread, Satan entered him, talking about Judas, and Jesus said to him, whatever you do, do quickly. You get the impression that not that Jesus is uh, condoning or or giving a stamp of approval for him to go do evil, but whatever Judas is going to do, Jesus says, go and do it. Go, go get that done. Do and you think that's Jesus saying to go ahead and get it out of the way, or what is your take on why Jesus says that? Jesus is orchestrating the whole scenario, I believe. You know, uh, the religious leaders and Judas and the whole mob that is against the, the, the anointed, I, you know, they're like the Keystone Cops. Uh, they could not accomplish the murder of Jesus, no matter how hard they had tried, unless Jesus, as the good shepherd, had laid down his life. Amen. I, I see this passage as Jesus giving the instructions. It's already in Judas's heart, uh, the beginning of uh, John, the 12th chapter, Judas, uh, Satan having entered Judas's heart. And so Jesus is orchestrating this, sending him to go and to get this done. Because it's the time of the Passover, Jesus is going to be that Passover lamb. That's my take on it. Yeah. So I have another thought on that, maybe? No, I, th- I think that's exactly it. And so you have uh, in John 18, then Judas, having received a detachment of troops and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, came with their, with their lanterns, torches, and weapons. You know, you see this sort of, you know, marching down the street, coming out after Jesus, this criminal doesn't speak about their speed, but I'm imagining this, and maybe there's some speculation on my part in, in this uh, text, but they're not just doing this casually, calmly, and slowly. They're marching out. They're, they're destined to go and, uh, and retrieve Jesus. So uh, in my mind, looking at that scenario in John, uh, it seems to me that, that they are very quick to do this. Also, I don't really have this as part of the slide, but they accomplish all of this overnight. 
It's, yeah. They yeah, are they, very quick. Yeah, Jesus is apparently in Jerusalem when he eats the, the, the Passover supper with the 12, during which he says to Judas, what you do, go and do quickly. And then Jesus uh, goes out. And they, they Let's see, do they sing the hymn? And then they go out to the right. Garden of Gethsemane. Exactly. So they sing a hymn. And they they cross the the Kidron stream there and go over to the Garden of Gethsemane. And Jesus spends time in prayer. And there's there's several things that he says to the apostles, which are recorded in John 13 through 17. And and then before the night is over, that very same night in John chapter 18, then Judas shows up with this mob. So they were not dilly-dallying about this. Judas went right to them got them together and they get this whole band together and they have, they're hastening enough that even though they have to cross the Kidron to go over to the Mount of Olives, they're there before the sun comes up. Exactly. Now, all of this transpires very fast. Uh, when you think about the, the magnitude of, of what's taking place, getting everybody together and so forth. Um, the, the and so, apparently some hours before the sun comes up because then they take Jesus back to um, Caiaphas's place, and or was it Annas's place? I guess it's Caiaphas's place, and uh, there are hours during which Jesus is tried there before the sun comes up. In right. his it. So, so yeah, yeah. They, they acted quickly. We, we, we got a comment from Tim Maudlin. He says, the trial Jesus went through was almost running from one authority figure to another just so they could accomplish their purpose. And on, on this point, the feet that are swift in running to evil – it didn't really matter who they were going to go to. As long as they saw this man crucified, they're going to do whatever they had to to quickly get this guy put down so they could get back to their lives of what they wanted to do, not what Jesus wanted. And that's yeah, the next that's right. point. Yeah, to, it, it, think about going from late that evening after the Lord has instituted the, the supper and wa has washed the disciples' feet, instituted the Lord's Supper, eaten Passover with them, sung a song, go out. Cross the brook, they're in the garden. And then from that point, all of this transpires from going from, see, is it Annas to Caiaphas, back to Annas, to Pilate, to Herod, back to Pilate, the Roman soldiers dealing with him, uh, you know, and then him carrying the cross. Uh, all of that transpiring in, you know, what, 12, 18 hours, maybe? I, I don't know. I guess probably about 12 hours, I guess. So uh, a lot of evil is being done rather quickly there. So thinking about then uh, following uh, those feet that are swift to running uh, to evil, look at Matthew chapter 26 for the false witnesses, which are tied together as they have come to get Jesus, brought him back uh, before the, the council in Matthew 26, 59 and 60. Now the priests, the elders, and all the council sought false testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. Even though many false witnesses came forward, they found none. But at last, two false witnesses came forward. Uh, and so the, the, the effort, you know, uh, what is it, three times it talks about false testimony, false witness, false witness, and the New King James that I have quoted there, um, a great emphasis on <laughs> getting somebody to stand before any liar, to stand before the council, to say what they've already told them to say. Um, uh, you know, think about what a trial this is, what a mockery of, of justice this is. So about, the false witness, uh, go ahead. 
How about number seven, one who sows discord, discord among brethren? That one was a little bit trickier trying to think that through. Um, and again, I'm not wanting to just sort of, you know, search things that aren't there and so forth. But Mark 15 uh, seemed uh, at least somewhat appropriate. The chief priest stirred up the crowd so that he should rather release Barabbas to them. Uh, and so sowing discord amongst the, the, all of the Jews that were there for the Passover, uh, that one would certainly fit. I think also having what the things that Judas did, his actions against the Lord would fit into sowing discord amongst brethren. Yeah. Passages where when evil comes in, whether it's false teaching or immorality or whatever, that's going to sow discord amongst brethren. Well, I think your Mark 15, 11 passage is very apropos. People sometimes forget that the multitudes, the common people, were enamored of Jesus. Uh, but the leadership who were opposed to Jesus managed to get uh, people to uh, you know, go along with this crucifixion. They were afraid to take Jesus in broad daylight because of the crowds that were enamored with him. But they managed to get people chanting, crucify him, crucify him, who whoever all that included. But on Judas, there is this. In John, the 12th chapter, we have this story that takes place six days before the Passover, so just within the week of Jesus' crucifixion, when Jesus is in Bethany, and uh, Mary comes and pours out this ointment, anoints Jesus with this ointment that would have been worth close to a year's wages of a common worker, and Judas says, why was not this ointment sold for 300 shillings and given to the poor? That's John, the 12th chapter, and verse 5. And then John tells us that he said that not because he cared for the poor, but because having the bag, he was in charge of the money bag that the disciples kept for their common funds. He helped himself to it. So he was really uh, looking to, for an opportunity or complaining that he didn't have an opportunity to help himself to the value of that ointment. Well, in Matthew's account of the same incident, in Matthew chapter 26, it says this in verse uh, nine, or rather verse eight, when the disciples saw it, the pouring out of this ointment on Jesus, when the disciples saw it, they had indignation saying to what purpose is this waste for this ointment might've been sold for much and given to the poor. So you put the two together. It appears it was, it was Judas who was the one who was motivated because of his, his greedy thieving ways, uh, to complain but then Matthew says the disciples complained, so it sounds like Judas began to complain and harp about what was going on, and that led to the other disciples chiming in, which would be one who sows discord among brethren. Excellent. Um, if I can, I'd like to make a comment on one of the uh, one of the Facebook comments. Karen points out Judas went out and it was dark both by lack of daylight and by spiritual righteousness, and she's referring to John thirteen after Jesus gives Judas the morsel um, in verse 27, after the morsel, Satan then entered into him. Therefore, Jesus said to him, what, what you do, do quickly. Now, no one of those reclining at the table knew for what purpose he had said this to him. And some were supposing because Judas had the money box that Jesus was saying to him, buy the things we have need of for the feast or else that he should give something to the poor. And in verse 30, it says, so after receiving the morsel, he went out immediately and it was night. There you go. What do you guys think about that? Do you think there's some significance there? Did Judas going out by night and it symbolizing any of this? 
I do. In John, throughout the Gospel of John, the writer has continually emphasized the contrast between night and dark. Jesus is the light that comes into a dark world. Um, Jesus talks about walking in the light versus walking in darkness, walk in the light that you might not stumble. Uh, and he's continually talking about the fact that you know Jesus didn't do this or that because his hour was not yet come, meaning all this is building to a climax at which time his hour comes. And then we get down to John chapter 12 and 13 and his hour has come and Judas goes out and it's night. In fact, Jesus says earlier in the book of John, when he talks about walking in the daylight, uh, the night comes, it's coming. And then here comes Judas to betray Jesus and it's night. I think John is, it's a thematic element there. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, in fact, there's three times in John that it references Nicodemus coming by night um, uh, and so, you know, that, that just seems really interesting to me that that, that would be, um, you know, a, a point. It doesn't just say it in John 3. It repeats it both times that Nicodemus comes up again in John 7.50 and then later on in John 19.39 that Nicodemus came by night. And, again, that same idea. He's coming. He doesn't, you know, he doesn't know the scriptures. Remember the things that Jesus said to him. Darkness uh, until he comes to the light. Uh, I think that's exactly right. Um, even the disciples in John 21, verse 3, Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we are going with you also. They went out and immediately got in the boat. And that night they caught nothing. And then Jesus comes to them in John 21. I think you're just following that idea. And uh, Jeff mentioned those other passages in John 9 and in John 11, uh, very much a, a theme in, in the, the Gospel of John of night, darkness, light, uh, walking in the light. It's a, th- it's, it's a theme of John. You go on to the first John, you, you see that the, the book of revelation, same idea as well. You know, Joe, you started out this, I was, you started out this webcast today talking about this passage in Proverbs six and wondering why these six or seven specific things are mentioned that the Lord hates. And, and then noticing that, uh, well, lo and behold, you have all these things in the betrayal and crucifixion of Jesus, the last week of Jesus' life, and wondering if maybe what's going on in Proverbs 6 is calling attention to the things that are going to be used against Jesus. Just to, uh, kind of drive home the point another way, if people watching look at the right side of your chart. You have several passages. Let's skip the one in, from Psalm 109, which is an Old Testament reference pointing to uh, the parenthetical reference there in Acts chapter 120, all the rest of those passages, uh, you have passage from Matthew in five of these instances, and all of the Matthew passages, with the exception of Matthew twelve fourteen, are from Matthew 22 or later. Remember that Matthew chapter 21 is the day of the triumphal entry when Jesus rides into Jerusalem on what we would call Sunday at the beginning of the crucifixion week. What I'm saying is that just looking at the chapter numbers, chapter 22, 23, 24, 25, 26, 27, you know that in Matthew, then, you're in the last week of Jesus' life. And then when you look at the references to John, you have references from John chapter 12 and John chapter 13 and John chapter 18. Well, John chapter 12, the first couple of verses begins with the observation that it was six days before Passover, when Jesus, of course, would eat the Passover and then be crucified the, the next day. And so we're within a week of Jesus' crucifixion if we're anywhere in John 12 or later. 
Um, and then, of course, you have Mark chapter 15, which is right there in that time frame. So just kind of looking at it that way, it highlights the fact that all of these uh, references that you have, we're focusing on that last week of Jesus' life as a very good illustration of the seven things the Lord hates. And, and so then if you could just take that conclusion, and I appreciate you noting that, uh, it's really helpful the way that you said it, especially, uh, take that conclusion, uh, that idea, and then think backwards. These are the things that happened to the innocent son of God who came only to save the world. Doesn't that make the list on the left even more despicable? Doesn't, can't we really appreciate why there are six things the Lord hates, just seven that are abomination? These are the things that, that, that mankind, that, that we did to uh, the only begotten Son of God. Mm-hmm. So, uh, go I, ahead, Chase. I have a question. So, when we go back over to Proverbs 6, I think it's pretty noticeable that these seven things the Lord hates are in the dead middle of the proverb. Have you thought much about the context of, of where those are placed? In verses 12 through 15, talking about this worthless person who's winking with his eyes, who signals with his feet, who points with his fingers, and it just talks about how his calamity is coming down on him. Then the six things that, or the seven things the Lord hates, and then it goes into talking about you need to bind these things around your neck. Is there any significance there? And does it make sense that the flow of thought would work this way? You know, I love that idea. I had looked at the first part, 12 through 15, especially, and I think that that very much follows the train of thought that you're presenting here. I don't know how far to go with that, but I really, I had not thought enough about the latter verses of the need to make sure that you keep hold of God's word. That certainly is is fitting. Um, uh, I don't know if we go on to uh, the adulterous woman. If we think of that from a spiritual vantage point, um, uh, then that would certainly be fitting as well. I haven't given that as, as much thought as, as I could or should. Um, but it, at the very least ought to give us pause to not think of the book of Proverbs as such random pithy sayings. Um, uh, there are themes, uh, there are flows to uh, the Proverbs. Um, uh, several people have done a much better job than I could to, to point those out. But, but your observations there, I think, fit that idea. Just, just talking about, just going back to uh, the idea there are six things the Lord hates, yea, seven. Um, you know, that's kind of an interesting question. And maybe people would wonder, why does it say six things and then say seven? Did they forget one and then remember it or what? But it's, it seems that it's, it's maybe you could call it a liter- literary device, maybe even a rhetorical device. In Proverbs 30, verse 18, there are three things which are too wonderful for me, four which I do not understand. And then it lists them. In verse 21, under three things, the earth quakes. And under four, it cannot bear up. Uh, it just seems it's a it's a device for um, highlighting, uh, calling attention to the list one is about to introduce. Um, I'm not sure any more to say that say than that. But it's not that the writer thought of six and then he goes, oh, here's one more. <laughs> yeah. 
And there's at least some argument made for the last one being a, a climactic, uh, you know, or more significant point, conclusionary point. I don't know that I would make that argument with all of the ones. There's about three, there's about four or five of them in Proverbs 30 that are like that three things, a four or whatever. Um, I'm not sure that I see that the last one is more significant in all of them or a conclusion. But I do think that it's interesting here in Proverbs 6 to see how this one who sows discord amongst brethren, uh, you know, that one perhaps keys off of all the other ones and has such a long-lasting effect, whether it be amongst the Jews through the book of Acts or amongst Christians in Corinth or other places as well. Um, uh, I, I think it's interesting to try to think that through. But, yeah, you're exactly right. This is very much a, a, a literary device to, to draw our attention to them. So uh, let's see how much more time we've got. We've got about uh, eight minutes. Uh, let me look at this last chart with you. And, it, and this is just my conclusion. Uh, I think we can put some verses to these things, but I'm not trying to find something that's not there. But it just got me to thinking, if there are seven things that the Lord hates, then might there be seven things that the Lord loves as well? And uh, thinking about that, I just took the opposites of Proverbs 6. And so as opposed to a proud look, you have uh, the humble look. As opposed to a lying tongue, you have a tongue that only speaks the truth. As opposed to hands that shed innocent blood, hands that save guilty blood as opposed to a heart that devises wicked plan, a heart that devises godly plans, as opposed to feet that are swift to uh, running to evil, feet that are swift in running to uh, holiness, as opposed to a false witness who speaks lies, a true witness, as opposed to one who sows discord amongst brethren, one who unites. Then I just ask, and maybe this is obvious where I'm wanting to go with this, but who best fits that description? Jesus Christ. Yeah. I, I, when, I, when I started writing those out and trying to find the opposites of these things, to me that was really striking. And that drove me back to Proverbs 6 and gave me that sort of <clears throat> moment in thinking about this maybe being a messianic proverb because Jesus is doing exactly the opposite and not just sort of superficially or, well, yeah, I can sort of see where this point fits. No, this is a, this is the character, you know, uh, if you were to draw a picture of Jesus, this is what he looks like. Especially when you get to number three, it's hard not to see Jesus in that one. Right. I yeah. mean, all of them, yes, but, but hands that save guilty blood. Yeah, yeah. You know, uh, just maybe the, a couple of verses here. I don't have these on the chart. And I don't have them in front of me. I worked on them over time. Uh, but the humble look, thinking about the humility of Jesus from uh, uh, Psalm 2. Um, uh, and Jesus, you know, truly, truly, I say to you, everything that Jesus said was, was from the Father. He was only speaking the truth. You mentioned verse 3. The heart that devises godly plans, you know, from the beginning of time, before the foundations of the world, God had set forth this plan that are swift and running to holiness. As quickly as they were plotting against Jesus, um, there's a passage now, I've lost it in my head. I want to say Mark 10, 
where Jesus is headed to Jerusalem and he's out in front of his disciples as they're walking along. You know, he is, he is swift to, to accomplish this task. He's called the true witness in the book of Revelation. And then his prayer in John 17 for unification of uh, God's people. Uh, and so, the, you know, these are rather uh, open and obvious descriptions of our Lord uh, that I'm, it, it really causes me to think carefully, not only about those people in Matthew and Mark and John that we read a moment ago, but of myself as well. When I think back to, uh, you know, those things that the Lord hates, well, when I'm guilty of those, that's me putting the Lord on the cross in some way. Uh, and so I need to decide to be more like the Lord and I need to be working on these kinds of things that are on the chart here, things that the Lord loves. So uh, maybe for the last five minutes, I got a couple of Facebook comments that came in that I think we can address. Sure. Um, Joe, can you go back to the slide previous um, for one of these comments? So Robin uh, Bauer points out, uh, one of the argument that a false witness and one who sows discord is not a thought or thing, but a person. So does God hate a person who sows discord? Yes. 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 There's a very common popular saying that God hates the sin and loves the sinner. The truth is we become the abomination that we love, Hosea 9 and in verse 10. We can't separate what we're doing and who we are. I understand to some degree the hesitance in saying that, and I'm not saying it with any proud sense. I'm a sinner and deeply in need of God's mercy. Um, uh, but but there, there comes a point where the people become an abomination to the Lord. Uh, and I think there's, just a, there's numerous examples of that through the Old Testament. You quoted Hosea 9, verse... 10. Did I misquote that one? Is that not the right one? I was just going to turn to it and read it. Hosea 9, 10, I found Israel like grapes in the wilderness. This is the passage you're talking about? Yes. The last part of the verse. I saw your forefathers as the earliest fruit on the fig tree in its first season, but they came to Baal Peor and devoted themselves to shame, and they became as detestable as that which they loved. So, yeah. Yeah. Particularly the last part of that. You, we, we, you know, we are what you eat. You know, I'm bacon. Um, but we are also, from a spiritual vantage point, we are what we love. Uh, and so the more we love the Lord, the more we become like him. But if we love lying and false witnessing and discord, yeah. But it's a great question. <laughs> the God thing is, so loves the world. Go ahead, Jeff. The thing is, we all have, God has granted us all the opportunity to be in his love. It's really up to us whether we're objects of God's wrath, uh, hate, you could say, or his love. And he loves the world, as you started to quote there, and gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes on him should not perish, but have eternal life. In John chapter 15 and verse um, 10, if you keep my commandments, you shall abide in my love even as I've kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. So there's God's love available to everybody. And it's our choice whether we're in it or not. Right. 
Uh, just another one. Uh, my wife uh, reminded me uh, it's in Romans 11, right, where it's quoted that uh, Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. I'm drawing a blank on seeing it right now, but uh, uh, it, um, um, no, I, I, it's in chapter nine. nine. Yeah, nine, nine, nine thirteen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Was there another question, Chase? Yeah, uh, Tim Modlin just real quickly points out. Uh, I don't know if this ties in. I thought of the scripture in Matthew 22, 36 through 40. Of course, that passage is talking about the two great commandments that Jesus points out. uh, Verse 40, on these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. That being, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and then love your neighbor as yourself. He asks the question, are these seven things an affront to those two commandments and to Jesus who fulfilled the law? Um. Well, I think all of the instructions fit under those two, so yes. Um, yeah. I agree. I think that's the way I would answer that as well. Uh, they're all, and that's why Jesus' answer was so perfect when that person asked that question, also in Mark's account in chapter 12, because everything is summed up in those two commandments. Yeah. We're almost out of time. Let me just emphasize this. Well, I think this chart is really cool, I I got great benefit by by studying through this and, and working on this. This is where the challenge is. This is what we need to focus on. This is what we need to be like, the seven things that the Lord loves. Well, thank you all very much for joining us. Thanks, Chase, Jeff, and, and Drew for your help. Uh, and thanks all of those who uh, watched and participated with your comments and questions. Hope you have a good day. Bye-bye.